1: Hello, good friends. Good to see you again. And welcome to this week's Reporters' Roundtable. Looking back at the news of the week from our nation's capital with three of Washington's top political reporters. Well, we know Hurricane Ian dominated the news this week, not only for the death and destruction left behind in Florida and soon South Carolina, but for its impact on the political scene. Because of Hurricane Ian, Joe Biden and Ron DeSantis agreed to bury the hatchet temporarily, Donald Trump was able to hide out at Mar-a-Lago and escape being deposed by New York state lawyers, and the January 6th committee was forced to postpone its 10th public hearing featuring clips from the Roger Stone documentary. But the committee did hear testimony from conservative political activist Ginny Thomas. Meanwhile, at the 11th hour, it looks like Congress will avoid another government shutdown, uh, at least for a few weeks. History will be made today at the Supreme Court with the investiture ceremony for Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. And in his new book, former Congressman Denver Regalman and co-author Hunter, I'm sorry, Hunter Walker, revealed the first known phone call from the Trump White House to a member of the armed mob assaulting the Capitol on January 6th. Lots of news to talk about, and here today to make some sense of it all, Linda Feldman, Washington Bureau Chief for Christian Science Monitor and uh, White House Correspondent. Hello, Linda. Hi, Bill. John Bennett, editor-at-large and columnist for CQ Roll Call and reporter for the CQ Afternoon Briefing Newsletter. Hello, John. Hello, Bill. And as mentioned, Hunter Walker, everyman journalist, and most recently, co-author of The Breach with former Congressman Denver Regelman, Hello, Hunter.
0: Hey, Bill. How are you?
1: Okay, great. Thanks all for joining us. Uh, Of course, we dominated wall-to-wall coverage this week with Hurricane Ian, which is now rated the largest and worst natural disaster in Florida's history, which is saying something. And it not only impacted Florida, as I mentioned, but also the political scene, Uh, This is a test for governors and presidents. So John, Joe Biden, and Ron DeSantis had a phone call and decided to bury the hatchet. How long is that going to last?
2: Well, as soon as they hung up, I believe. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you said it right. They temporarily buried the hatchet. Um, You know, they they had to talk. I think it was in in both their interests to uh, be seen as, as working together, despite all their many, many differences, despite all... The Desantis lawsuits to the Biden uh, against the Biden administration. Um, you know he needs help. Frankly, uh, any governor would need help at mm-hmm. a time like this. Uh, Hurricane Ian. You know, high winds and just a lot of rain. A lot of rain. We're about to get it here in the DC region. Uh, my family's down in North Carolina. They're getting it right now. So you know, all these governors are going to need help. And you know, even even Governor Desantis, who set him up has himself up <laughs> as kind of this. Um, you know, almost, um, I don't want to say superhuman governor, but that he does portray himself as as pretty self-reliant and a problem solver. Um, he had to talk to the president. He had to ask for some federal assistance. Uh, they're going to need a lot of help. And, and Joe Biden, you know, he ran as the, the unifier in chief. He hasn't necessarily governed that way. Um, a, a lot of legislation that's passed has certainly leaned uh, toward the progressive wing of his caucus. Um, And he needs it, too. He needs to be seen. Uh You know, he's going to help a Trump state. He's not going to pick and choose. And, you know, I I think it was in their interest to talk. But, you know, from here, I think um, other than, you know, Biden said he's going to go to Florida, tour the damage, meet with uh, uh, folks who were affected by the storm. And, you know, he might meet with DeSantis when he's down there. He said yesterday he's willing to if, if the governor is willing to and available. So, They might have one in-person meeting when Biden goes uh, in the next couple of days. But from here, it'll be, you know, at the staff level. The administrations will talk to each other and they'll work out what Florida needs.
1: Yeah. And Linda, with echoes of and uh, not so and very painful memories of George W. Bush and Hurricane Katrina, right? The White House certainly uh, has to be aware of the sensitivity and the importance of this moment for Joe Biden, uh, how are they dealing with it?
3: Well, they're uh, doing what presidents do, which is to offer all assistance, uh, to put politics to the side, uh, you know, visit the site, and actually land on the ground and not just do a flyover, which was George W. Bush's big mistake. I also think it, it, we, we can't leave this topic without mentioning the fact that as a Congressman, Ron DeSantis opposed aid to victims of Superstorm Super Sandy, uh, the, the, the storm right before um, Obama's re-election. And that, uh, you know, was, was mm-hmm. a pretty controversial position to take to oppose federal aid. I mean, federal aid during a storm is a given. And this, this was, of course, Ron DeSantis trying to make a point, but now the shoe's on the other foot and he needs the help.
2: Right.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, uh, by the way, and of course, President Biden went to FEMA, I think, day one of the hurricane. He was ever the new head uh, of FEMA. Uh, I was going to ask you about that, Hunter. Not only Ron DeSantis, but Marco Rubio voted uh, against help to uh, Hurricane Sandy, which particularly hit the New York, New Jersey area, of course, um, maybe kind of spared Florida. Um, that uh, That's hard for that's tough for them to handle or explain these days.
0: Well, you know, I'm, I'm here in Brooklyn right now. This is my home. <laughs> and my home was flooded during Hurricane Sandy. And Whoa. I was actually um, with President Obama um, as a pool reporter when he came and visited Staten Island, which had just been ravaged by the storm. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think I, I so appreciate Linda for calling back to that time because, you know, it's absolutely nuts that this is a story at all. As Linda was saying, you know, federal disaster aid is supposed to be a given. It's not supposed to be political. George W. Bush got got you know, reamed for his handling of Hurricane Katrina, but they were trying to help. It's only in this sort of post Tea Party universe that you have people like Ron DeSantis, um, Marco Rubio, and then, of course, President Trump, you know, uh, shortly before the 2020 election, he was threatening California with disaster aid. He routinely threatened, you know, Democratic cities with sort of withholding normal, normal federal support. Right. So this is really not an extraordinary thing. If anything it's a return to normalcy and it's sort of the the 2024 version of, you know, Obama and Chris Christie hugging each other after Sandy. I mean this is what's <laughs> supposed to happen. It's not remarkable. This is government.
2: <laughs> right. And, and uh, do you guys remember when do you guys remember when then President Trump was asked there was a hurricane I think it was approaching Florida and uh, usually, as President Biden did this week, uh, listen to local officials and oh. get the heck out of there, folks. Uh, and, and Trump said, well, if people want to stay, they should stay. So Hunter's <laughs> right. This this week is, is a return to normalcy. Uh,
1: we haven't seen Ron DeSantis take a map of the uh uh, of the projected path of the hurricane, right, <laughs> right? <Okay.
3: laughs>
1: uh, and change it with his uh, with his sharpie, however, uh and the other impact, of course, is how the January sixth committee had a big hearing scheduled for uh Wednesday. uh They had to postpone that hearing uh I think wisely, uh, but the highlight of the hearing was going to be release of clips from a documentary made by some Danish filmmakers of longtime political trickster Roger Stone and Trump political advisor Roger Stone. CNN, however, uh, was able to obtain parts of that documentary. Uh, Here is one little clip, thanks to CNN, where Roger Stone, this is in July 2020, July 2020, long six months before uh, people were voting, uh, and he uh, tells the crew, Kind of what's going to happen when the votes are counted? Here's Roger Stone.
0: Oh, these are the California results. Sorry, we're not accepting them. We're challenging them in court. If the electors show up at the at the Electoral College, armed guards will throw them out. I'm the president. Fuck you. You're not stealing Florida. You're not stealing Ohio. I'm challenging all of it, and the judges we're going to are judges I appointed. Fuck you. You're not stealing the election. We'll have an investigation. We'll say, these ballots are fake. Your results are invalidated. Goodbye. That's the way it's going to have to look. It's going to be really nasty because they cheat, and we don't cheat. We've never cheated.
1: Uh, So, John Bennett, um, that's exactly what happened, right? Roger Stone, whispering that into Trump's ear. So what impact would this this testimony have, do you think?
2: You're right. That's exactly uh, what happened. Um, Well, we've all... We've all um, been on the receiving end of, of phone calls from Mr. Stone. Um, I certainly remember standing in a, a Dirksen uh, Senate office building hallway years ago and, and Roger calling me back and going on a, just a, a rant like that, a lot of expletives. And I couldn't even use it in anything I wrote that week because there were just too many four-letter words. Um but you know I, my question about this is you know and I wrote this in the recently rebranded CQ Afternoon Briefing newsletter be sure to subscribe at cq.com um All right there's the plug I, yeah, always wrote, always
1: welcome this, right? <laughs> right
2: thank you thank you Bill um <laughs> is this really where the committee wants to leave the public because this is you know this is maybe about criminal referrals but it's also clearly Liz Cheney has said it in so many words about Trying to politically disqualify Donald Trump from ever holding office again, meaning being president again. Is this really their walk off witness, Roger Stone? I mean, yes, everything happened that he said, but he's a loose cannon. You know, on anything else, he would not be viewed by many Democrats, most all Democrats, I think, as a credible witness. So now he's supposed to be the most credible witness. Is this really how they want to leave things? It just it, it, something something doesn't add up for me, at least. Yeah. What,
1: what's the White House saying about this uh, testimony uh, or this documentary, if anything, Linda?
3: I'm not hearing anything. I mean, Roger Stone, I, I mean, Roger Stone is just not serious. I see him more as a gadfly than as, as any kind of serious advisor to President, former President Trump. Um, so he 's entertaining uh, and i 'm i 'm just struck by the fact that Danish uh filmmaker wanted to make you know a, a major documentary about Roger Stone of all people i mean he is a colorful character had a colorful life but i there 's no way he 's the walk off witness absolutely no way
1: right uh, hunter you 've dealt with a lot of these people who were who you you were at the Capitol on January sixth. Uh, you've dealt with a lot of the people who stormed the Capitol. Rochester Stone had a lot of um, close relationships with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, right?
0: Absolutely. He went um, to the Capitol um, with a... Um Oathkeeper security detail. Um, the night before January sixth, he was participating in a rally um, with Alex Jones and all sorts of uh, figures who were kind of linked to militants. Really interestingly, and I think uh, we, we deal with this in the breach. We show how this was kind of um, a very dramatic example of the synergy between you know the QAnon conspiracy, election conspiracy movement, and Christian nationalism. Roger Stone, who's famously a swinger and a libertine, stood on stage that day and claimed to have been born again. Um, I I think that is, you know, an example of how untrustworthy he is, how, as Linda said, he is, you know, in one way, an unserious person, but in another way, he's an extremely serious person. Mm -hmm. And what I mean is that, you know, I talked with Roger Stone about Donald Trump as early as 2013, when he was sort of saying, no, Donald, don't run for governor in New York run for president. And if you go back to that moment that Trump came down on the golden escalator, Roger Stone and his little assistant, Sam Nunberg, were like two of the four closest advisors to Trump who really architected the initial Trump campaign. And Stone is also, people do not realize this, and we detail it in full in the breach, he is the founding father of the Stop the Steel movement, which actually began as, you know, the, um, I think it was called the Trump Ballot Security Project in 2016. And and, and Stone said, you know, um, why wouldn't they try to steal the election from Donald Trump? If this election is close, they will steal it. And he ended up calling that the Emergency Committee to stop mm. the steal when he rebranded it in 2020 after, of course, he had no issue with the results in the 2016 election. <laughs> right. And one thing we go through in this book is that, you know, if you look at the telephone data that Denver Riggleman and his team compiled, because in addition to being a, a former congressman, he was a technical advisor to the Daniel Ray Sixth Committee, Roger Stone is one of the central figures- on these phone maps that the team created of sort of the militants and all the people involved in January 6th. And this is despite the fact that Roger Stone has refused to turn over his phone records to the committee. We see through his assistant, the so-called Manhattan Madam, Kristen Davis, that they were in touch with everybody. And particularly, she had direct connections to people associated with these militant groups. So he's an extremely interesting figure, but he is untrustworthy. And he's been in a million documentaries. And I'm not not really sure why we would go the route of a danish film festival rather than presenting the hard data and the history that shows that roger stone had been planning to fight any election trump lost regardless of the facts and that he was in touch with militant groups throughout that process
1: now uh in terms of uh, shameless plugs on the program uh hunter tell us uh the name of the book and when does it come out uh uh, uh, um, and you're, you're the co-author.
0: Yes. The, the book is called The Breach, The Untold Story of the Investigation into January 6th. Um, it's in stores now wherever books are oh. sold. We, we sort of surprise dropped it this week. You can see an interview. It launched with um, Denver on 60 Minutes. And, and really, you know, as I was sort of alluding to, and, and I, I apologize for the level of shameless plugging I'm doing right now, <laughs> I, I really think this is an important story because we do get into raw data that the committee has not presented to the American people. And the data, particularly yep. these phone records and unpublished texts from Mark Meadows and others, shows that the political and military components of the attack on our capital were definitively linked. It shows that more members of Congress than has ever been pre... Uh, previously dispo- disclosed were involved in this effort to overturn the election. It shows that Jim Jordan was was leading efforts to overturn the election out of the headquarters of a conservative dark money group called CPI in Washington. So there's a lot of new info in there. And then on another level, you know, Denver talks about his own personal story, uh, growing up in a conservative, far right, ultra religious environment, and ultimately, um, you know, becoming a Republican politician and yeah. using that unique insight, he's able able to talk about, you know, how these QAnon conspiracy theories are almost perfectly engineered to appeal to that community and how his colleagues completely bought into stuff that was deranged to the point that he wondered if they had cognitive issues. So I really hope people will read it. You can get it anywhere. It's called The Breach.
1: The Breach, Denver Regelman uh, and Hunter Walker. Denver, of course, former uh, Republican congressman from Virginia, conservative Republican congressman from Virginia, and a former senior advisor to the January 6th committee. End of plug. Uh, John, back to the star witness or the mo- or the final witness. Uh, isn't the final witness maybe Ginny Thomas? What a- <laughs> so she goes before the committee yesterday and says, yeah, I still believe the election was stolen. From Donald Trump?
2: Well, at least she's consistent, right? <laughs> <laughs> one, one thing about the delay because of the hurricane, and and Stephanie Miller, uh, congresswoman from Florida, uh, her district was in the initial path. I mean, they got hit, but I think it turned. Um, so her district might have gotten lucky a little bit uh, with the storm's path, but that's why they delayed it. Uh, she needed to, yeah. to attend to her constituents. But one, one thing about the delay that, that might be good, for us all, is now perhaps the committee will be able to play clips of their interview yesterday with Jenny Thomas, of course, the wife of conservative Supreme Court Justice, who's on my television right now, um, uh, Clarence Thomas. Um, So, you know, maybe we'll get to hear some of Jenny Thomas's testimony. Uh, So maybe, you know, Hurricane Ian, maybe the one uh, favor (laughs) that Hurricane Ian's done us all is that, uh, whenever they reschedule this uh, potentially last public hearing, um, and, and we can hear what what her involvement was in uh, in in trying to overturn election results in you know those handful of of swing states, and you know if they play her testimony, the question it raises for a lot of folks is, you know, if any of these uh, twenty twenty election related cases make it to the Supreme Court will Clarence Thomas have to recuse himself? And then what does that do for the outcome of any of those cases?
1: Well, that gets to my uh, next question, Linda. I I, I can't help but ask you this because Ginny Thomas, uh, according to um, the committee, uh, and in fact, she released her opening statement, Mm -hmm. uh, so it's been reported. She not only told them she still believes the election was stolen, but that she never, never, never discusses any of her political activity with her husband,
3: gosh, Bill. I, somehow, I, su- I have the feeling that you <laughs> quite believe that.
1: <laughs> Not for <laughs> a second. Should we, should we? I mean, come on. I mean, right?
3: so the the giant question hanging all, all over this is: what did Clarence Thomas know, and when did he know it? <laughs> I, mean, I, I just so I'm going to. Let's just give them some benefit of the doubt and say that maybe she doesn't share everything with him, but he has to know something. And, you know, and furthermore, on this issue of recusal, it's up to him. There's no there's there's the custom of the Supreme Court, but there's no law or regulation governing their conduct, including the issue of recusal. So he may well be presiding over it over. A January sixth case.
1: Uh, that's another issue altogether. But the shocking lack of uh, regulations on moral behavior, or financial disclosures, or dis- or recusals on, on on the part of the Supreme Court. They um, they have really isolated themselves from almost any standards that apply to members of Congress, for example. But. Again, another issue. We'll get into we'll get into that someday. Right now, we're going to take a quick break and then come back to some of the other news of the week with uh, today's panel, Linda Feldman, from the Christian Science Monitor, John Bennett, CQ Roll Call, and Hunter Walker, co-author of The Breach, here on today's Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. In today's Roundtable, you know, look, something like Hurricane Ian happens. People are in trouble. We all feel... God, how can we help? How can we help? I got to tell you, what I discovered is the best way to help whenever people are in trouble is to help the World Central Kitchen and Chef Jose Andres because where people, when people are in trouble anywhere in the world, they are there on the spot as they are right now. They're still serving hot meals and providing lots of benefits to people in Ukraine. And now they are across Florida, across the Caribbean, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, helping people get through uh, the aftermath of Hurricane Ian. So I encourage you to do what uh, Carol and I have done. Go to World Central Kitchen, wck.org. It's easy, wck.org. Um, give them whatever help you can and know that your help, you will be helping them make a difference and uh, improving, helping people get through these tough times, wck.org.
2: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
1: And we're back on today's roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod. Thanks again for joining us. Hunter Walker's here. He uh, just uh, published a new book with uh, former Congressman Daniel Denver Regelman. the name of the book, The Breach. It's basically the inside story of uh, what's been discovered by the January 6th committee and some things we never heard about before that they have uncovered. Linda Feldman joining us, covers the White House for the Christian Science Monitor and John Bennett, editor-at-large, columnist for CQ Roll Call, and also contributed as the CQ Afternoon Briefing newsletter. Uh, it was Kevin McCarthy trying to make a little news this week, uh, saying if we are take, our, take back the Congress... This year, here's what you can expect from us. Here's Kevin McCarthy with a a whole long list
0: of cliches. Republicans have worked for the last year and a half, and we have the commitment to America. The policies that create a plan to put us on a new track. It's a plan for an economy that is strong. A plan for a nation that is safe, where communities are protected. Law enforcement is respected, and criminals are prosecuted. It's a plan for a future that is built on freedom a plan for government that is accountable, where politicians don't get special treatment.
1: What do you think, Hunter? It's hard to be against any of that. God (laughs) bless America, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I think, you know, the the real question is going to be this. You know, we we just saw Joe Manchin today, um, who's literally, you know, seemingly enjoyed being the tiebreaker in the Senate, say he doesn't want a 50-50 Senate. Um, You know, the current... Dichotomy where you kind of have a divided Congress in the White House, right? Not a lot seems to get done. So all of this sounds nice, but you know, I'm not really clear how much Kevin McCarthy can get done. I'm not clear how much Joe Biden can get done. We kind of seem to be, you know, in a world of kind of endless, you know, Washington gridlock, nearly averted shutdowns, and near tiebreakers. But you know, this is a good opportunity for I think everyone to, you know, slap their branding on their various proposals
1: right um what (laughs) speaking in the midterms uh i mean most people do concede um that the republicans are going to take over the house but not by as many seats as we thought earlier uh joe manchin hunter you you mentioned actually said he thinks the senate's going to stay democratic and actually pick up he he said one seat it'll be 51 49 is what he's predicting uh linda what role is joe biden going to be playing in the midterms uh do people want him out there on the on the campaign trail with him? is he he seems to be anxious to get out there? What do you hear
3: so this is it's kind of sad for Joe Biden, so he's finally reached the presidency and he loves to campaign. He loves politics, and people don't want him on the on the stump with him. I mean even before the hurricane, he was planning to go to Florida uh and uh Charlie Christ was willing to appear uh on stage with him. So he's the opponent uh, to to Ron DeSantis in the gubernatorial race, which, of course, Ron DeSantis is going to win. So Charlie Crist had nothing to lose. Val Demings, who's opposed to Marco Rubio, she was said uh, she had a conflict, quote unquote, and wasn't going to be there. Um, so that just tells you and she's, you know. She's not well-known statewide, actually. So she perhaps could use some help, but she, I think, concluded that Joe Biden wasn't going to help her. Joe Biden is unpopular. He's unpopular in Florida. Um, he's, uh, you know, I, I'm not aware of anybody anywhere in the country really clamoring for a Joe Biden campaign appearance.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, I remember in California, we used to say, I'll campaign for you or against you, whichever will help, right? Right. And <laughs> maybe that's what uh, Biden uh, has to tell people. John, uh, from CQ Roll Call, you guys follow every damn congressional race and every Senate race. Uh, how Somehow do you see we it? do, yes. Yeah. Good, and good for you for doing so. And thank you for doing. But how do you see it?
2: I think Linda's right. Uh, you know, nobody's uh, the White House switchboard is, is not necessarily lighting up with Democratic candidates, um, you know, begging for a Joe Biden rally. Uh, in in their district or their state right now. You know, but 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 the president does have some momentum. You know, they've he's got some legislative victories. Uh, the al-Zwahari uh, al-Qaeda leader, you know, that that's on the receipt, too. Um, um, so he's got some victories lately. His his approval rating is ticking up. You know, it's low 40s pushing the mid 40s, which isn't great. But that's better than, you know, 38%. So um, he doesn't necessarily have coattails, uh, but but maybe as we get closer, um, uh, maybe somebody will ask for a Joe Biden appearance or rally or town hall or something. Uh, But right now, you know, they're fine to, um, you know, to run on the economy, might be getting better, um, run on... uh, You know, Democrats don't necessarily run on fear like Republicans do, but I think they have an opportunity to say, well, look what might happen if those guys are in charge. Look at some of the policies that we think that they'll try to push and they can use the Commitment to America plan. They can use the Rick Scott plan, which is way to the right of what McCarthy rolled out uh, last week. You know, um, you know, Rick Scott wants to sunset um, Social Security every five years. He wants to get rid of of this program that that your parents depend on. So Democrats have a chance here uh, to kind of steal a play from Republicans and and run on fear a little bit and And what we're looking at right now is um, our elections analyst Nathan Gonzalez this week wrote that he thinks the house will be um, it'll come down to about you know 20 or 30 races and he's like you said, bill, uh, he's predicting the House will be a Republican majority, but a lot uh, a lot smaller of a majority than everybody thought six weeks ago, six months ago. And I agree with Nathan right now. He's got the Senate just an absolute photo finish.
1: Good take on that, John. Um, the other issue that I found uh, I- um, interesting this week is the question of election reform. Now, that's a very broad term, but the the, the issue before the Senate and the House is to clean up the uh, procedure by which the Electoral College uh, meets and the Congress um, accepts the results of the Electoral College and the role of the Vice President, which, of course, Donald Trump uh, tried to get Mike Pence to um, totally change and overthrow the election. Uh, Pence, fortunately, I believe, uh, refused to do so. Now Congress is dealing with. Uh, a bill which would say no for sh- among other things no for sure the vice president's role is merely uh, procedural uh to certify he has no independent authority to overturn the election results and mitch mcconnell uh, donald trump has told the senate they can't do this this is wrong this this you've got to oppose this mitch mcconnell came out this week and said he's going to vote for it um what does that tell us, Hunter, about Mitch McConnell? Is he finally willing to break publicly with Donald Trump?
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I've been down this road a, a couple times before, including right after January 6th, right? McConnell yeah. always, like, like flirts with the idea of, like, you know, breaking with the Trump wing, but he also always seems to come back home. So, you know, I, 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 I'm really, you know, I just... Uh, call it ptsd call it deja vu all over again But, but no i i would never bet money on mitch mcconnell crossing donald trump
1: uh and one does wonder why particularly when as you pointed out hunter you read again his speech that he gave right after the senate acquitted donald trump right when mitch mcconnell went on the floor and just roasted donald trump uh, and said he was totally responsible for what happened uh, on January 6th. Uh, Linda, I want, I want to give you and then everybody else who wants to join in uh, the final question. Is the government going to shut down this weekend?
3: <laughs> this just in, no. And honestly, I didn't even pay that much attention to that storyline because we knew it wasn't going to shut down. There was was zero chance that... Uh, It was going to shut down weeks before the midterms. It was in nobody's interest for the government to shut down. And so, you know, end of story.
1: Uh, And and Linda, we always see this, right? It goes to the 11th hour every time, right? And then somehow they pull a rabbit out of the hat.
3: Right. And I mean, the the one interesting storyline, of course, was Joe Manchin and his, um, his effort to streamline the permitting process for energy projects, which is... You know? Coal plants. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's you know the permitting process is 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 nerve gas for most voters. Most people don't pay attention to that, but it does shine a light on Joe Manchin and the uh, you know the unique position that he's in. Uh, he's up for re-election in two years, but that that race is already game on. He's he's in danger, obviously. Uh, his he's probably the last Democrat who will ever represent the
1: Senate.
3: Yeah. So, um, that was the, for me, the only reason to pay attention and he, to that, to the, the shutdown legislation, which, uh, is, you know, will clear. And we we now have till December 16th to figure out how to fund the government. Uh,
1: so John, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you know how long it's been since the Congress actually passed a budget
3: <laughs> rather than,
1: <laughs> rather than just kick the can down the, down the road?
2: Well, we've had we've had some omnibus uh, spending bills. And speaking of nerve gas, uh, we can start talking about omnibuses. Uh, but but an omnibus is 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 a massive spending bill that that funds usually, you know, every federal department and agency. So, you know, instead of doing a defense appropriations bill and a, an HHS spending bill and a DHS spending bill and I could go on, but I won't. Um, they just now wait until the very end. There is an omnibus behind the scenes right now for fiscal 2023 <laughs> that is being talked about and negotiated, and Richard Shelby's talking to, to his house counterparts, and and they're going back and forth, and staffers are talking about it. And that's what we think, we think, uh, they're going to pass sometime in December, right before the holidays, uh, another massive spending bill. So the answer is to your question is actually, yes, but it's not how they used to do it. You know, like 15, 20 years ago, they would pass spending bill by spending bill, um, you know, in in the summer and fall for the next fiscal year. They don't do that anymore. They just wait until the end and pass this massive thing. And, you know, this is one, you know, it's it's not a great way to run a government, to fund a government. Um, You know, Donald Trump didn't, even Donald Trump, didn't like omnibus spending bills. Um, nobody likes them, but it's the only way they can really do it because you know somebody will try to slip a poison pill in a spending bill, and we'll see it in December. You know there'll be a fight for you know a week or so over an abortion rider or a, a, a climate change rider that gets slipped in somewhere, and, and they'll have to fight about it. Um, but remember, those fights are good for everybody. So, so, so it's a complicated answer. They do pass a budget. Um, mm-hmm. It'll be noisy in December, but I we think right now, and and our our budget team, our ace budget team, they're all over this. They think yes, there will be an omnibus in December, um, but there's always a chance that that they can't do it, especially let's say Republicans take the House, especially if Republicans also take the Senate. Uh, McConnell's going to be under some pressure from the Rick Scotts of the world, Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, that faction of his caucus to, to really press hard for just another stopgap into next year because Republicans would have more negotiating power over federal spending. Um, so if, if Republicans take the Senate, you're going to hear a lot of pressure on McConnell to block that omnibus.
1: Uh, I guess, Hunter, final comment, right? It's a hell of a way to run a railroad.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, I always sort of feel comfortable. I think you can see this when I sort of, you know, expect gridlock in Congress, when I expect McConnell to (laughs) sort of try to have it both ways. I always feel pretty comfortable um, betting on the status quo in DC. (laughs) Um, And, you know, John did, I think, a, a much, uh, a much better technical breakdown than I could do of what that'll look like. But, it, you know, it, it, it seems like the threat of shutdowns has just become sort of background noise and part of how our government runs now, um, you know, for about a decade. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. this omnibus like seems, you know, you know, if they can even do that, as I was breaking down, it's no guarantee, like that seems like a little bit of progress, but the bottom line is I think sort of the days of normal, non-controversial appropriations are behind us.
1: Are behind us and may never come back. All right. Great look back at the news of the week. Linda Feldman, John Bennett, Hunter Walker, thank you. Thank you so much. With everything going on and all these different stories that you've been covering and writing about, uh, there's always one story that um you – or it's either part of your portfolio or not. That stops you in your tracks and makes you say, whoa, um, your favorite story of the week is what we call it. Um, where do we start? Uh, John Bennett. Uh, you know what? You always start with, a, you always have a sports thing. So how about Linda? You want to start us off?
3: <laughs> so we have a place in Florida, in Broward County, and uh-huh. so we're watching this storm very, very carefully. And so. Watching the aftermath and our our place is fine. Um, not in Good. not in the path of the hurricane. Uh obviously just terrible, terrible destruction in Florida. But I'm I'm a sucker for, you know, people people who rescued dogs and cats, people who mm-hmm. wade through gushing water to reach a kitty cat standing on top of a, you know, air conditioning unit. But my favorite of those stories was the Collier County Cowboys who uh rescued an elderly man from his flooded vehicle he was he was about to die and he he couldn't get out of his car and these guys busted into his car and got him out of there um so that i just i am a sucker for All that kind of thing
1: i saw that video and the video of the rescued cat too both were <laughs> uh, very very dramatic uh hunter how about you <laughs> bill do you
0: even have to ask what my favorite story is? <laughs> no, all right.
1: This okay. week? Here we go. Another plug for the book. Okay, go ahead. No, no, no. No. Oh, no.
0: Oh. <laughs> I am here in Brooklyn. Oh, and of I love the New York Yankees Baseball Club, and Aaron Judge this week. There tied you go. Uh. The real. Single season home run record, which also belonged to the Yankees. Roger Maris's epic total of 61 homers. And, and, you know, there's two specific angles on this story that I really enjoyed. One is, you know, he did it in Toronto. Uh, sadly, he didn't do it at the stadium. Um, <laughs> And one of these Blue Jays fans, one of these adults who brought a glove to the game like he was going to get called in, just missed, missed the probably million dollar ball by about five inches. So Judge Uh is going to get to keep it. We got Uh a beautiful reaction shot. And then Uh also Roger Maris, Jr., son of the man who almost certainly is going to get beaten for the record. He came out and he said that the MLB should give judge the single season home run record, do the right thing and vacate, the 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 mm. steroid tainted numbers of Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, oh, and Sammy wow. Sosa. He wow. said, you know, it means a lot for me. I think it means a lot for the people. He's clean. He's a Yankee. He plays the right way. I agree <laughs> with Roger Maris Jr. Let's go, Yankees. Aaron Judge, oh. the home run king.
1: Oh my God. There we go. Ra, rah, rah.
2: rah. <laughs> uh so John Bennett, can you top that? I guess. I- <laughs> That's a tough act to follow. I can't top it. I won't try. Uh, but <laughs> we will. We will stick with baseball. Uh. And and because, you know, you've you've asked us to, to talk about the story that kind of stopped us in our tracks. Um, I was driving back from from Capitol Hill the other day uh, doing some reporting and I was listening to what's become my favorite D.C. sports talk show host, Bram Weinstein, used to work for ESPN. Uh, he's now the voice of the Washington Commanders. He hosts a daily uh, sports radio show. And he was laying out, and he's been talking to sources here and in Baltimore, of course the Nationals and the Orioles, both for sale. And Bram walked through this scenario that his sources are beginning to whisper about and talk about, where Ted Leonsis, who now owns the Washington Wizards, right. the Washington Capitals, he owns what I guess is still Capital One Arena downtown, where Ted, who's rumored to be the leading contender to buy the Nationals, would actually buy the Orioles instead, that would give him. Now they would have to f- continue fighting out in court, but Ted would at least he would get both the Orioles and Nationals television rights,
3: oh, and he would oh. and he
2: would also sell the Wizards, but ret- and, and part of that deal retain the broadcast rights. He would put all three teams on his network, Monumental Sports Network, and then he would basically own the distribution rights, and he would not have to pay NBA players anymore these huge salaries. And as Bram and, and Hat Tip to Bram laid out, Ted would actually make more money dumping the Wizards, not buying the Nationals, buying the Orioles, and distributing all three on his network. And I almost drove into the Potomac. It makes so <laughs> It makes so much sense. And, um, you know, the Nationals, what exactly are you buying with the Washington Nationals? They just lost their 101st game. They traded away all their players. They don't really have a farm system. They don't even own their local television rights. So keep an eye on Leontis and the Orioles. That might be his play.
0: Yeah. You're right. definitely not buying the home run king with the Washington Nationals <laughs> because <laughs>
1: oh, oh. he plays in the Bronx. Yes? That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I have to tell you, but um, my my favorite story is that's so pale compared to those. But um, but mine does concern. I think the biggest political scandal of the week. I'm surprised none of you mentioned it, and that is up in New Jersey's fourth congressional district, where. Uh, Hard luck Democrat Matt Jenkins is trying to uh, overturn incumbent Republican Chris Smith. Smith has been there a long time. It's a a deep red district. There's no way Matt Jenkins could win anyway. Uh, Matt Jenkins is way behind, but now he's really in trouble because it turns out that his campaign logo is a Canada goose in flight. And if any of you have lived on the West East Coast, you know there is a convenience store named Wawa, and the longtime logo of Wawa is a Canada goose in flight. So Wawa has now sued Matt Jenkins for stealing their logo of the flying Canada goose. Uh, Matt Jenkins does admit That he used the goose because he thought people would see the goose and think of Wawa. They like Wawa, therefore they might also like him. Uh, I would have to say now for um, even another reason, Matt Jenkins, who is behind double digits in the polls, who has about $150 in his campaign fund and now has a lawsuit from Wawa. This is a Democratic candidate, shall we say, whose goose is cooked. (laughs) There we go. <laughs> oh. oh, Linda Feldman, Christian Science Monitor. Thank you so much, Linda. John Bennett, CQ Roll Call. Thanks, John. Good to have you back. And Hunter Walker, great to have you back. Uh, congratulations on the new book. And we'll encourage everybody to get a copy of The Breach. Uh, thank and thank you, you. Thank you all for joining us today. Great roundtable. We'll be back on Tuesday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. an interview talking about great books with Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. Uh, Their new book is just out this week. It's called The Divider, all about the four years of the Trump presidency. I got to tell you, I cover this stuff every day. uh, And yet I learned so much from their new book. It's a great new book of Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. Joining us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next time.